0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of this channel, and today we are going to be talking to Mark Vincent about his new book, Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, Prisoner Society in the Stalinist Labor Camps from 1924 to 1953. Uh, thank you for being here, Mark. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um so I am Dr. Mark Vincent. Um you can find me on Twitter at Vincent Criminal. Also um got a podcast of my own which is Cult of the Urca podcast. And um yeah, I'm the author of a, an imminent publication, um Criminal Subculture in, in the Gulag. Uh, I've been teaching also in the UK for for a number of years and so my interests are, are generally um, crime and punishment in the 19th and 20th century in Russia and the Soviet Union.
0: So what got you interested in this topic?
1: Well, um, it really was a film actually at the start. so there's, um, there's a, a movie called Eastern Promises, which has uh, Viggo Mortensen starring as the I suppose the, the kind of central character. Um, the film revolves around the Russian mafia in London. And the film's incredibly violent. At the same time, that I was, you know, possibly enjoying like Quentin Tarantino-style movies as well. But actually, the um, the uh, rituals of the 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 Vori, the the thieves, the the gang of um mobsters who are in London in this movie got me interested in, uh, f- at the beginning the tattoos. But as that went uh, went on, um more of their uh, different um, behaviours and uh, how influential, I suppose, they were as well.
0: So when most people tend to think of gulag, they tend to think of political prisoners a la Solzhenitsyn, not really criminals like the Vori. So how much of the gulag was populated by political prisoners and how much of them were traditional criminals? Well,
1: um, it really is... a small fraction of both of those two groups i suppose that um we have an understanding of political prisoners through the the um a panthenon of memoirs that is created and in those memoirs there's a very strong presence of um you know criminals criminal gangs Um, but actually the majority of people who are incarcerated at least in the period that i'm um, looking at um, are actually just just kind of ordinary people who are who are sentenced for what is regarded as kind of uh, everyday life crimes, you know, turning up for for for, for late uh, if you're working in a factory, for example. So, um, despite the fact that we have a, an understanding of the the criminals and the political, this very strong binary of the two groups, the majority of Gulag inmates actually come from a from what's normally like considered just just a kind of uh, an ordinary background.
0: Were there differences in the way these groups were treated? I know you're particularly looking at the Vori. Were they treated differently or more harshly than non-Vori prisoners in the Gulag?
1: I think, if anything, they probably um, have a much more lenient time. I think there is a very curious relationship between um, the authorities and these uh, these criminal gangs that, that form. Um, and for the most part of my book at least up until the second world war they're not quite the worry in in the way that we that we understand them they're more just kind of ad hoc gangs um who who come together through you know like um if they're if they're from the from the same city or the same street even um or if they're in, incarcerated for similar crimes i think those 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 gangs get that you know that the the agency that they have because of um the lack of, of staffing in a lot of regions so there has to be this this kind of balance between um what the authorities and what the guards can do in terms of monitoring the prisoners and uh in order to um in order to control prisoner society they they get, they give a, a little bit of uh, leeway to to these criminal gangs so i think if anything they they perhaps um get away with a lot that they probably shouldn't
0: well, it it does seem, I mean, my research is collective farms, but that uh, understaffing, under-resource, lack of resources is sort of the, you know, mark of the Stalinist era. Nobody had enough people to effectively monitor anything. And so as long as no one was doing anything incredibly terrible, you know, <laughs> small crimes such as, you know, embezzlement, drunkenness and stuff were often overlooked. Mm,
1: absolutely. I think, and this is why we don't see any large-scale uprisings in the in the gulag until uh and, until it really peaks in terms of um pr- prisoner population and and um, following um stalin's death in in 1953 and the amnesties as well i think that this um the, this equilibrium is kind of is kind of maintained r- reasonably well up until that point
0: so were there any other factors that paved the way for the growth of organized crime and the rise of the vory within the political or the penal system
1: I think um, that the Second World War is absolutely crucial to, uh, to what happens with the development of the uh, organised crime groups afterwards. So what we have at the, uh, at the start of the Second World War fairly obviously is uh, large numbers of prisoners um, going off to fight on the front lines and penal battalions. I think um, I'm right in saying it's about a million prisoners uh, leave the camps to go and participate. And so what happens on their return is that the prisoners who have left to fight in these battalions are met by um, recidivist criminals who have stayed inside the camps, and um, that um, cooperation with the regime and fighting, you know, from the Red Army and for for the Soviet Union brings these two groups into direct conflict, and uh, that's where we really see the kind of um, birth of the of the Vory. That's uh, really um, a very strong foundational myth. For them comes through this uh, this this war between different criminal gangs because of participation or or, or non participation in in World War II.
0: So how did the Vori start defining themselves? You you said initially that that was basically Zimlachistva people from similar areas who just sort of grouped together for survival. How do they start transforming into? Uh, you know this cast of organized crime Russian mafia we think of today
1: uh, so I think when we, when we have this, uh, this 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 divide this fracture in in terms of um criminal kind of recidivist society and um, the different groups um start to um tattoo themselves. In, in various ways to indicate the factions that they belong to. So uh, we, we have the, the, the vori and other kind of splinter groups from from the vori names such as the departed um, and, and so on and then opposing them we have the the bitches, the Suki. Uh, and so both of these groups um, begin to tattoo themselves to indicate that they are they are part of one group or another. and this is where we see a change in the tattoo culture from really being, um, it, you know, the, the, the codified part of tattoos up until that point had been more to indicate if you were an arsonist or if you were a bandit or, a, a, you know, whatever a cr- criminal profession um, that, that, you know, you claimed as your speciality. So um, with the Second World War, we see this fracturing, and that is reflected in the, in the, um, in the uh, tattoos of the prisoners from, from, you know, kind of immediate post-Second World War period onwards.
0: So, what kind of tattoo culture existed uh, pre World War One or World War Two? I mean, it, was there a Czarist tattoo culture what, among criminals?
1: Well, so I was going to I was going to follow up on that by saying that there is actually one that's pre World War One, and there is a there is a, um, a a kind of Czarist tattoo culture, and um, some of the, um, the criminologists um, in the early in the early nineteen twenties are writing about this, and also we can go even further back and some of the reports of of Sahalin Island talk about the tattoos as well. But those um, those late Imperial tattoos, those pre, you know, pre-World War One tattoos, um, they have more uh, of an aesthetic focus. So a lot of them are satirical, but also some of them are um, essentially rip off versions of famous paintings. So um, the, the the most popular artists um, for uh, prisoners to have tattooed on them is Vaznetsov. Uh, so the, <laughs> the 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 uh, and you know with the the images of the the medieval knights,
0: yeah, he's they're from Kirov,
1: oh okay, we yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, have the museum for the Vaznetsov brothers right here, downtown,
1: okay, wow, well, no, I didn't understand that. I spent a lot of time staring at Vaznetsov paintings uh, and then replications of it on the chests of um of prisoners. I wonder
0: um, if it's because vyatka was a place of exile. I mean, a lot of prisoners ended up here. Even in the czarist period, as either exile or on their way to Siberia, I mean, we ended up with people like Gertsen, saltikov Shidrin, oh, and then a, a bunch of less famous people who got treated a whole lot worse.
1: Yeah, sure. No, I'm. Um, I th- I think there could definitely be something in that. I mean, Vyatka is the name that that, uh, that pops up regularly in 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 the work that I do. So, um, it would be it would be fascinating to try and find out. Um, so. What we have is the development from the nineteen thirties onwards of a of a more um, a, of a, a tattoo culture, which is a bit more varied than had existed uh, as far as as far as we know in the in the um, in in the late imperial period, in in the kind of early early you know period of the Soviet Union, the nineteen twenties. So from the thirties um according to 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 memoirs and some other evidence that we can find this is this is when tattoos start to to become um m- more of a more of a passport in, you know into in in criminal and prisoner society um, and they also start reflecting um the um soviet regime directly so we start um seeing images of lenin and stalin appearing and um other um, famous propaganda images. So the one that, that I use most often is Dmitry Moore's um, enlistment poster from the Civil War. Um, so with the growth of the Soviet regime and with the higher numbers of incarceration, fairly obviously, you know, during the during the purge years, we see that uh, tattoo culture um, becomes um, a, a lot bigger, and um, the tattoos take on a whole load of of, of of different meanings. The the aesthetic part of it kind of remains as does the, the almost, um, kind of, um, like the, the, the romanticism, you know, people getting tattoos of their, you know, their estranged lovers and so on. But, um, it certainly becomes a lot more professionalized, um, and linked directly to a growth of criminal, uh, culture during the 1930s. And then that, that again takes another leap during the forties and with the, with the wider events that are happening.
0: Just out of curiosity, how are they doing these tattoos? Is this like sharpened pins or
1: um, with whatever they can find? I mean, most like so most pop, popular popularly um, is uh, notebook wire. So I, I, I think in a lot of a, a lot of memoirs. Um, I refer to notebook wire being used, but but basically like like anything they can get their hands on at the you know the sociologist Irving Goffman describes this in in one of his books from the seventies as, as make do's, um so so really anything that will work, and I'm sure a whole load of things that that, that don't work out particularly well either. But the one that I, I tend to always go back to is um is 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 notebook wire, um and they use the uh, soles soles of the boots as well, which are which are burnt to to make the um to make the ink.
0: Because tattoo machines do actually exist during World War Two, because the Nazis used them.
1: Of course, yeah. And no, I think there's a. I'm kind of fascinated by the um, <laughs> the 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 slight interplay between the stuff that I do and um, certainly the recent boom in um, at least you know kind of fi- you know, popular fiction regarding um, you know tattooing and uh, Auschwitz um, and how the how the Nazis used the. Um, use tattooing and and yeah of course you're right they you know they have the equipment to do it but certainly in the in the gulag it remains it remains something which is um which is technically illegal but it like a lot of lot of things um that happen inside the zone it continues to happen regardless well
0: technically illegal in in the soviet union in russia just means it's fine until you get caught (laughs) absolutely So, were there any other behaviors other than tattooing that they used to uh, identify themselves as members of a certain group, as, as Vori or? Um, well, my, my book is actually
1: um, is actually ordered uh, in in terms of the like the different behavioral rituals. So, uh, going into quite a lot of detail about the um, uh, about in, initiations uh, and so that the you know the types of tests that that people are, are, are put through to prove their kind of loyalty in, you know, in the group. And a lot of the time, this is just a, a, a kind of mastery of, um, you know, uh, of, of, you know, verbal, um, uh, you know, techniques, um, to show their dominance over other prisoners or, or just kind of straightforward fighting actually. Um, most of the time that, that helps prove your worst to, to the gang um, and impresses the, the, the Pakan, the boss, um, I then in the book talk about um, the importance of tattooing, but I, I've actually got a chapter of um, visual and verbal communication together. So um, I look at um, the, the the tattooing as the visual part of that, and the the slang which develops as, as the verbal part. So um, you know, the, again, a, a kind of um, mastery of the of the of the slang. Um not just the kind of general slang that we now know from Solts and so on, but often uh there are different layers, you know, going right down to a kind of um a kind of language that'll only really be 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 understood amongst that that specific gang that's using it and it still remains fairly secretive.
0: So where would you find this recorded? Because most of these people are, are now dead, so you would have to find it in some sort of archival form. Who would have recorded prisoner slang?
1: Um, well, most prominently, um, Jacques Rossi. So, uh, so Jacques Rossi is a prisoner who, who's re- reasonably well known. He's not right. You know, he's not in the kind of top five, uh, Gulag inmates, you know, that would you know, still be Solzhenitsyn and Ginsburg and so on. But Jacques Rossi actually, um, publishes a Gulag handbook, um, which, which I, I believe I'm right in saying comes out in the seventies. So, um. Rossi records slang from his experience in the in the in the forties and in the fifties. There are also dictionaries of slang which exist um, in the late imperial period in the nineteen twenties. There's a bit of a gap actually in the in the thirties, um, and and um, again fairly obviously there's a lot of dictionaries of slang which emerge with the growth of more organised crime in the eighties and nineties. So I've, I've used a lot of a, a lot of those dictionaries. Um, memoirs where you know where where i've been able to um publish and unpublished so i've kind of benefited from from the some of the memorial society archives um so the real answer is um a whole load of different places (laughs) it's yeah quite a it's quite a uh quite a patchwork quite a mosaic um to, to to at least put put that part of it together
0: how do you as a non-native speaker figure out that this is slang? Because some of these words are, you know, <laughs> otherwise normal words. Like, I, I have some interesting Russian friends. You know, one of them told me, like, Pituch, uh, You know, of course, it's a normal Russian word for uh, rooster, but it also apparently, I guess, is somebody who is sodomized in prison. Yep, of course, um, yes. So how, how would you figure that out when you don't have the cultural context?
1: I mean, I cross I, – like I, – like, well, um personally i try to cross reference um everything as much as possible but again, again the the most honest answer is um i bombard my russian friends with emails <laughs> um and and um ask them to help me out with it as well like as uh, yeah as a non native speaker and, and and also um different generations you know mm-hmm. so i have a variety of different russian friends But actually uh my um my my russian translator from the uk who 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 grew up in moscow uh, who's in a in her 60s now she's she's my kind of go-to person Ver, uh, Veronica Balker uh, who's a wonderful translator in her own right um, so I, I mean I I have to be quite resourceful I think in in the in the way that I um, use uh, friends or kind of wider contacts and um, a lot of the a lot of the time you can find the 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 the, the slang leaves the camps as well you, you know we have a revolving door in the gulag of 20 percent of prisoners um leaving every year even at the height of um of the terror so um quite a lot of the language uh as i'm, as I'm sure you're aware um ends up just kind of being part of um i suppose uh, what we might term as like colloquial russian um especially with um people like um visotsky in this popularity uh, uh and and to the yeah, to the point where now um, people have um, picked apart um, parts of Putin's speeches and and um, th- and drawn out words and phrases that come directly from either you know criminal society or or more directly um, the Gulag.
0: Well, I mean, English has phrases like that, like punk is actually sure, apparently yeah. equivalent to pituk initially. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I know that the language changes a lot. Like, my students even now have trouble with "palevin" and sort of 1990s slang because sure,
1: yeah. you
0: know, that makes me feel very old. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God, guys, you weren't even born in the last century uh uh i mean it is an issue i have trouble sometimes even with coho's slang just because Mm. it's isolated for me by culture and and time you know of course
1: yeah and 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 knowing how like it uh, as much as detailed um as i can as i can go into researching and as many people i can ask uh, i suppose this is the same for you as well we can't know how you know t- you know two people in the 1930s will use the slang mm-hmm. and interpret it you know um i think it is just a uh an 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 understanding of um of russian linguistics which is very you know very helpful and which for me was one of the most difficult things to do when i was um when i was uh starting my 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 phd and which subsequently turned into the book um a lot of common sense as well like you said you know like n- <laughs> From from spending a little bit of time in Moscow, I began to f- figure out where um different slang words might fit into kind of more general conversation or, you know, environments they might be used in. I started hearing words in bars <laughs> in uh, Kithai Gorod and I kind of kind of figured it out from there.
0: So uh, any interesting slang you want to teach our listeners?
1: Um. Oh, I'm always quite bad. Um, <laughs> That's when, kind
0: of the fun part though, isn't
1: yeah, it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, um, you'll have to get back to me on that one. I'll, okay. I'll maybe drop some slang in, in the remainder of the interview.
0: Or they have to buy your book to find out?
1: Yes. I mean, there's a lot of slang in there.
0: So how did the, the Vori establish and maintain hierarchies within, um, within their own groups and within the, uh, system itself i i mean assume violence was a part of this but any other ways
1: um well they have their own in- internal group hierarchies and um, so the internal group hierarchies are very similar um to probably a lot of familiar um you know, like criminal groups from from film and tv so you have a, a leader who is m- most um often uh, referred to as the pahan um you know the boss um and then Will delegate down to uh, to the uh, to chestyorkies, so sixers, they're they're kind of lackeys, um, and then under that you have um a, a large number of other gang members who are kind of, for want of a better expression, also kind of squabbling and vying for for position and to 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 prove their um you know their their worth and their loyalty to to the to the boss to the pahan, but also to the, to the group in a more in a more general sense.
0: Is this a family like structure, like the Italian organized crime, or is this more like you would see from like South, South American gangs? I I
1: would I, I would say more South American gangs. Uh, I make the comparisons in the book of U.S. gangs and um, and South African prison gangs, so the the numbers gangs in in, in South Africa. Um, but yeah, like extremely extremely vertical, and uh, and yeah yeah def- def- yeah the def- not not defined um by familial ties in in the same way, I think that's a very big difference between the um the Russian mafia or you know the the vori and the sicilian mafia um you know just just uh in terms of of of, of the hierarchy and the and the structure
0: so how did fellow prisoners who were not part of the vori deal with having this you know highly centralized very violent element within camps did they try to avoid them was there a lot of conflict between vori and non-vori um um
1: i i i I was surprised by the fact that there wasn't more like i think the other prisoners definitely (laughs) understand to stay out of their way and at, at times they don't have much choice in that especially on some of the um uh, on uh, on the, some of the voyages and you know and, and the um, penal um, transportation, um, but ac- actually from what I've found, and this is probably not a great expression, the other prisoners become uh, certainly in the, in the in the kind of post World War II camps c- collateral. You know, like the 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 main violence actually still occurs uh, within the gang itself in terms of internal discipline and punishment or um in regards to what i was talking about earlier and the, uh, the 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 war that develops between different gangs and um there is violence um at times which is directed towards uh the guards and you know other other staff of the of the um of the camps but actually um in looking at the different accounts of violence perpetrated by, by recidivist criminals, by criminal gangs, it, it's mainly towards their, their, their kind of own, if that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I remember the 1990s gang wars in the U S <laughs> and that was actually very similar. Other people who got injured were simply caught in the crossfire. It is very
1: territorial, you know, like, and there's a lot of, very, there's a lot of excellent work on, on, um, on Russian gangs, um, Svetlana Stevenson's uh, book, which was published a couple of years ago. And there is a huge, um, huge amount of interplay between the gangs that Svetlana talks about in, um, in, 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 in the nineties and the two thousands and the, the gangs that I look at in the 1920s, 1930s and you know into the forties. So I, I think it, I, I think it is the, the, the gangs that I look at dominate certain areas of the barracks. Um, uh, and they have complete uh, agency uh, over um, the um, prisoner transportation process at times, um, but certainly the gangs that I, that I look at, they know they know what they can get away with in some areas, and 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 not others. So, for instance, that when they get taken to the work site, there is um, there is there is very little violence that occurs there because as soon as it does, then the chances are that they're going to be shot by guards. So uh, it is incredibly territorial.
0: So how does this violence a- affect the camp and colony personnel, too? Because they, you said they were understaffed. Um, and do they grant concessions to the, the Vori to avoid violence? Um, or are they very strict? Because, you know, the, the normal person thinks of the gulag as, you know, you put a toe out of line and something truly terrible happens to mm. you.
1: Um. I think they I think they allow the um, the, the, the um, criminal gangs um, and the, the, and the, mo- the the leader of the gangs what if you're you know, reading through the memoirs will often have the most say in this that there, there'll actually be a, a link between the staff at least the low-level staff uh, and and um, the, the, the criminal authorities um, and sometimes this will this will involve um, you know, running the black market in, in a way which the staff and the you know the the high ranking prisoners are directly linked but uh, i think that the general approach of the authorities is to al- allow the dominance of the, of the gangs in some areas um, because that won't then in in in, in, re- in theory turn into a large scale uprising and and also the biggest concern to the authorities is still um, the political prisoners and the, the spread of of the spread of um, subversive ideas in the way that they that they look at it, um. So they see the criminal gangs as being kind of you know socially close, or or uh, in in terms of their potential redeemability. So um, they allow them concessions again for for one of a for one of a different you know expression for it, um, because that allows them to reach their or or to get closer towards their overarching goals in terms of what the um camp authorities want want from you know from from the from the labor camp system
0: so do the VORI participate in any of the re-education programs? Because I know the political prisoners were often not really supposed to, but so they occasionally did. Um, and that the, the Gulag did actually offer things like theater circle and football. I can't really imagine <laughs> you know, Russian mafia doing, you know, the nutcracker, but. Um,
1: no, well, I'm just going to highlight it. There's a very good article by Stephen Maddox on, on football in the Gulag that I read recently. Um I do look at um, some of these activities. So a, a lot of the information that I found about the Labour camps of the 1920s comes through the prisoner newspaper. Um, but I, like overwhelmingly in the 1920s, it's what we would we, we describe as political prisoners who are, who are participating in the prisoner newspaper and also in the theatre to the point where um, the... Um, the the prisoners from a more of a kind of recidivist working class background get very frustrated and actually start writing complaints to the newspaper that their voices aren't being heard in it. Um, there, there's also a um, a, a theatre company, um, uh, uh, Solovki on you know the, the the Solovetsky Archipelago, which is formed of um, of svai, so kind of like this is a term for like our own in 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 terms of you know from being a work kind of working class um recidivist background so um there 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 is a partial um corroboration between the kind of um recidivist groups that I look at and the the education programs um but but actually a lot of the time that you know especially when we get later into the 1930s the the, the criminals I'm looking at um they're more likely just to um like to, to refuse to take part in any work duties and any cultural uh, educational activities whatsoever. And um, because they still, in, in terms of criminal society, they still see it as um, they still see it as collaborating with, we are uh, with, with the regime um, with, with, which is, which is their most, you know, strong, there's my, their most strident, their most uh, strongest kind of tenant um, in terms of criminal and recidivist society is um, don't, don't, collaborate with the authorities basically so um the real answer is it's very complicated <laughs> there is part partial evidence but um certainly it doesn't work like the attempts by the uh, the regime to get the recidivists to take part in it you know on a large scale it um, is pretty unsuccessful
0: that leads me to my next question about work refusal it's commonly accepted that refusing to work was carried grave punishment both inside and outside of the gulag um inside the gulag could get you stuff like reduced rations trip mm-hmm. to the isolator uh but the vori as you said don't want to cooperate with the soviet government so how do they react or circumvent being punished for refusing to work
1: um so a lot of the time they accept a trip to the isolator uh and you can read a lot of um a lot of accounts from where other prisoners have ended have ended up being, you know, in these in these um you know, almost like kind of punishment compounds with a lot of you know criminal recidivists. Um, they they kind of accept um the if you know um if if they don't want to work then then they'll take the pun they'll take the punishment and they'll take the the hit um for it. Other than just accepting that if you're not going to work you're just going to get thrown into an isolator, um. There is a lot of hypocrisy in it as well. I mean, a lot. There are there are lots and lots of memoir accounts which do show that um, that that what I might term as you know, criminal recidivists are taking part in work activities, despite the fact that it's again it's it's their kind of number one rule to not work to not work for the regime. So um,
0: is that because they get more food and in some cases a chance for earlier release?
1: I think it works on a it works on a really um I mean it would it depends on how that camp functions and even that sub department of the camp sometimes yeah I think the most important thing to remember is that um you know as for all prisoners the the criminal recidivists are are trying to survive but what they often create is a is a kind of alternate route to rations because they can steal it from other prisoners they can they can have that you know they can they can um um they can they can trick other prisoners into playing cards against them and then cheat and then take their take their rations and take their jacket and so on um so i think i think it really does depend on the situation at at that particular camp at that particular time as to as to how the um you know the um the the criminal gangs behave i I think that from what i've said you know, from what I've seen in the memoirs, this is another fairly obvious point: is they're quite streetwise, <laughs> um, and they will they will figure out ways to circumvent the system.
0: Well, it's just very Russian in general.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I think you can say that about a lot of uh, a lot a lot of uh, a lot of prisoners around the globe.
0: Oh no! I don't, I don't even mean prisoners. I mean my cojoz, are masters at not doing what they're supposed to. Yeah, either. yeah, of,
1: yeah, of, <laughs> yeah. Of course. Um, and the wider things that we see in in Soviet society, you know, per, you know, personal connections, mm-hmm. um, swindling the boss. Um, this is all this is all taking place. You know, Tufta is is this is all taking place in the Gulag as well. Getting um, them to
0: turn a blind eye to you basically running private industry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you talk a little bit about gambling, and you sort of use it as a, sort of a micro history of prison life. Why was gambling important, and how did playing cards reflect larger realities? Why do you focus on it in the book?
1: I think in terms of um, in terms of prisoner society in the, in the Gulag, um, it it helps to f- it helps to fix the inmates in different in different categories and different positions uh, through the the card playing. Um, the cr- the criminal gangs, um, high-ranking criminal films are able to kind of to to show their dominance. So, um, and this is not just about stealing rations off of off of one one prisoner who's essentially being duped. Um, it's more about the audience of it as well. It's quite a kind of Foucauldian concept, I think. But the um the you know the the message to the audience, um, of of the authority of the gangs. This is a this is all. Played out um through through these different card games, um so I I re- I, I think that the biggest thing is it, it it shows the control over prisoner society that the recidivist groups have.
0: So in many ways, it's political theater like show trials. It's
1: abs- yeah absolutely theater. I mean it's this um the the um the gangs that that I'm talking about also hold their own trials, and there's a chapter of my book dedicated to it um in which um they will have they will have entire court scenes played out in the barracks they will have um they will have three judges um and you know they will, they'll they'll be supporting evidence given as to whatever the crime is that the person on trial is perpetrated Um, so they are they are directly mimicking the judicial process and you know the moscow show trials the the you know the case of uh, uh comrade pavlik um I think you know, like Russian Russian history has a has a very long tradition of these visual forms of punishment that exists, mm-hmm. you know, right up until today with the you know more recent trials of you know, Magnitsky and uh, Pussy Riot. So, um, yeah, it's like it's it's absolutely for the benefit of, of of the audience. As, I mean, as a lot of prisoner society is these you know the 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 micro movements, you know, even the t- even the tiniest um the tiniest word or gesture, uh, suggestion, they can, they can mean so much more because of, um, because of that particular situation within the, within the barbed wire of the, of the labor camp.
0: And what happens to these people who are members of these various societies once they're released? Do these criminal subcultures continue to influence their lives upon release? Are they mostly recidivists, um, and does this lead to the creation of some sort of criminal class?
1: Well, um, there, there is um, a lot of concern uh, with the, the amnesties in 1953 about a, uh, a cult of criminality forming. So, And there's a, a wonderful film, um, Cold Summer of 1953, uh, which... which um, is, is very um, explicit <laughs> in um, the potential dangers of these amnesties and, the, you know, large groups of recidivists kind of running, running um, havoc in the countryside. Um so following the, um, the, the amnesties following, following Stalin's death, yeah, there, yeah, there is a very high rate of recidivism. Um, so, uh, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the prisoners who are released the non-political prisoners who are released, um, end up, end up back in the camps quite quickly. Um, you know, quite, quite often, um, they'll be arrested at, um, train stations, um, you know, s- kind of singing, <laughs> singing songs like against the regime or, you know, taking part in criminalized activities. Um, there's a, a wonderful book by Alan Barenberg on Vorkuta, which talks about the problems caused by, um, by, by by criminal gangs essentially following the the, the amnesties in nineteen fifty three, um they, they they really do just um, f- like f- filter off all over the place if they if if they don't end up going back into the camp system the camp system of course has sh- you know sh- shrunk quite a lot at this point, um uh, and also criminal subculture starts entering the mainstream through through Vysotsky, uh and and you know uh, uh, other other kind of popular singers during that time so um it's it's a complicated picture that we we do start to then see the growth of organized crime gangs from the 70s onwards and um and that's when the you know the vory really do come to the forefront um uh, of, of life in the soviet union the the you know the, the the 80s and the 90s and you know you know um leading to the 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 images that I think we're all very familiar with yeah, during the, the um, Yeltsin period and the dominance of the, of the mafia during that time.
0: So do people end up becoming recidivists because of the restrictions placed on them as former criminals? Because I know, for example, a lot of the political prisoners get out with really serious restrictions about where they can live, what kind of jobs they can have, um, if they can go to educational institutions or not. Or is it because the people have become sort of invested in this criminal culture?
1: No, they they, they do suffer the same restrictions. You know the um, uh, is it, it one hundred and one kilometers? I think it is uh, you know uh, and the the, the 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 regime cities that um, certain people are not allowed into. Um, so there there is a, a a real um a real problem with being able to travel around afterwards. Um, in a very similar sense to what happens with some of the um, quote unquote, like political prisoners, some of the people who write memoirs, you yeah, um, know, yeah, um, Ginsburg ends up, ends up, uh, ends up staying after her sentence, you know, and she kind of uh, forms a, a life for, for herself um, in the, in the same region largely that, that she's been um, incarcerated. in. And I think this is the same for a lot of uh, a lot of the criminal recidivists, you know, like it, um they're large expenses to travel <laughs> you know you need resources to do it are they and, given
0: passports because collective uh, farmers don't get passports till the 1970s unless they go through a whole series of applications through their collective farm and then the rural soviet and they have to go to certain um enterprises uh and that makes it difficult for them to travel are uh, former criminals denied passports
1: um, I don't know if they're necessarily denied. i i um, I don't think they really. Uh, a lot of them really um, like seriously um, uh, invest in the idea of having passports. You know, uh, I think that the networks that they've formed inside the camps largely continue afterwards, and um, they <laughs> I haven't found much in terms of what you know the passportization process, and um, I I mean I've generally followed the the um the bad people in the camps who continue to be bad people afterwards if that if that makes sense and not the ones who then attempt to um to to re-enter society so we don't like i i certainly haven't found recidivism in the you know the our, our understanding of it now and people becoming reformed and entering back into society um, because it's easier for me to follow, um, you know, arrest arrests and so on in terms of the, you know, what what's left behind for me as a researcher. So, um, it'll be really interesting to go into that actually. I'd I'd what I'd love to do. This book ends in in ends in 1953 with um with the death of Stalin and has a little a little epilogue. But the project that I'm working on now goes a lot further into the to the 60s and the 70s. So I think that the, the, the passportization you know, part of you know, what I've done in the past could, could definitely be developed much further.
0: Okay. So what do you think overall your book adds to sort of the general field of Gulag studies, which does tend to be pretty heavily focused on political prisoners?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, my best answer is that there isn't another book like this. Um, you know, this is filling a really a really kind of huge gap in the scholarship um, not only that, it's um, it's the only it's the only book, at least you know the only book that that um, that that exists in English to uh, consider um, criminology and penology and sociology. You know, I've tried to bring in a lot of di- my different influences. You know, I'm a, I'm I'm someone who's who's previous. You know, like projects prior to this have all revolved around organized crime and criminality in some form. So I've I've brought a lot of things over from different disciplines. You know, and um, if anything, it's 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 reading up on um, you know how to use memoirs and how to get around the, the the Soviet part of this and the late imperial part. You know, in, in terms of uh, um, what I've done in an introduction to you know to to, to my book. Um, but what I what I think ultimately is that. Um, and and hopefully this has been achieved in the book. I guess I'm going to find out when people read it. Um, is to bring um, the 49ers, so the, the the you know rather than the 58ers, which is um, anyone who's read um, you know a handful of gulag memoirs, um, or not even that you know the kind of secondary sources. So as you're well.
0: you're referring to the articles of criminal code that they're setting. Yeah. Under, so they're, the, just
1: the, for the, our listeners, if they don't know, know what course. a 49er is. Yeah. No. The so 49 is the um essentially a code for recidivism in the, in the 1920s and actually um at, um at, at Solovki the the you know the famous camp on the Solovetsky archipelago um prisoners were referring to themselves um or or having this label um given to them by others as well you know so um i think what has been overlooked in the past is um that um, d- despite the fact that we know a lot about the fifty-eighters, that other groups are also known by their particular, you know, criminal code designation as well. And, and so,
0: fifty-eight is uh, counter-revolutionary agitation, right? Yes, which okay.
1: is what the majority of uh, memoirists are are incarcerated under. Um, I mean, that is in it. Like the problem with using any criminal code is that they're always open to a massive amount of interpretation. Um, and they're, they're very, they're very broad. Um, so I've, I've tried to bring um, the 49ers, so the, the, you know, the kind of criminal recidivists um, more into view, you know, and and in an attempt to hopefully encourage other people to look at um, different groups and nationalities, you know, who, who are obviously imprisoned under um, at, t- at times, different, different codes as well. Um, the real, the real, um, kind of biggest thing that I discovered from reading a lot of memoirs especially um in Russian is is that these these different codes these you know 49ers 35ers 58ers I mean that's how that's how prisoners uh, and the authorities um you know like used to used to refer to each other in the camps and I, I don't think that's been um emphasized as much as, as it could have been in in previous work on on the gulag
0: okay um so thank you for for being here maybe you'd like to tell us what you're working on next uh,
1: um yeah i'd love to i'm working on a uh, a tattoo project so tattoos are part of um a part of my um my book on criminal subculture but actually um the publication i'm working on at the moment deals directly with a um an, an archive of drawings so anyone familiar with um, the um, the Russian criminal tattoo encyclopedia, um, that, that has has been put together by um a company called Fuel Publishing based in London. Will know that the, the drawings of these tattoos may they 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 all come from from one guy who was who was allowed access around a lot of camps throughout his his thirty uh, odd year, year career um, in the Ministry of Internal Affairs. So I'm I'm working on a publication which looks directly at that archive. Um, and that should be that should be coming out at some point next year
0: well, that sounds very interesting i I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast and showing this new aspect of gulag studies to us so thank you very much
1: thank you so much goodbye bye bye